Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies with your speaker, Chris McCann. If you'd like more information or to hear more studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now, with your evening Bible study, here's Chris McCann. Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Genesis. Tonight is study number 25 of Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to be reading verses 17 and 18. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, Thou, and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And I'll stop reading there. In verse 17, God here, uh, for the first time, is uh, getting specific concerning how he intends to destroy the earth. He has already told Noah of his intention to destroy the earth, but this is the first time that God mentions a flood. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Now, Noah uh, perhaps could have gathered uh, that this was God's intention because he was being commanded to build an ark, and, and that is a ship that floats upon the water. But, It's not until verse 17 that God specifically tells him that uh, he is going to bring a flood. Now, the word uh, translated as flood is 3999 in the Hebrew concordance, and it's used 12 times um, beginning here in Genesis 6.17 through Genesis chapter 11. It's used, of course, um, in Genesis 7 when the flood begins, in Genesis 8, in Genesis 9. Those three chapters are all um, central to to the flood. But also in Genesis chapter 10, it's used in verse 1 where it says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. And again in verse 32 of Genesis 10, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And then once more in Genesis 11, in verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begat our facts had two years after the flood. So every instance where this Hebrew word um, translated as flood is found from Genesis 6:17 through Genesis 11 verse 10 has to do with the historical flood. There's, uh, there's no other um, usage that's referring to anything else. And This word is only translated as flood in the Bible, and it's only found 
one more time in the whole Old Testament. From Genesis 11, verse 10, uh, you, you can go through the rest of the books of the law, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and, and, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to say it in order, but Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, Esther, and, and so forth until you get to the Psalms. And then in Psalm 29, this Hebrew word translated as flood appears again. One more time. And then after Psalm 29, you won't find it in the rest of, in, in anywhere else in the Old Testament. You'll find other words translated as flood, but not this word, 3999. And, and so that means that Psalm 29 and verse 10, um, has everything to do with the flood of Noah's day. It, it, it says in Psalm 29, in that verse, verse 10, Jehovah sitteth upon the flood. Yea, Jehovah sitteth king forever. And, and, and it, it's an unusual verse. It's an unusual statement that the Lord is making. Jehovah sitteth upon the flood. One thing we can see, as um, we've mentioned before, the spiritual meaning of sitting in the Bible is to rule. Kings sit upon their thrones. And here God draws that equivalency. Jehovah sitteth upon the flood. And then using a Hebrew parallelism that that is found in, in the Psalms uh, fairly often, the second part of the verse is restating the first part of the verse. Yea, Jehovah sitteth king forever. So, Jehovah sitting upon the flood is, is equivalent to Jehovah sitteth or sitting king forever. And, and so, since it says he's sitting king, we can see that to sit does indeed have to do with ruling, with exercising dominion, with with um, being like a king upon his throne. But why does God um, say this in the first part of the verse, that Jehovah sitteth upon the flood? That's a curious thing to say. Why would God say that? Why would God use a word that in the other 12 instances, this is the 13th, in the other 12 instances, in every case, identifies with the historical flood of Noah's day. And then in this one place, make this statement that Jehovah sitteth upon the flood. He's, he's sitting as king, ruling forever is the idea. And well, all we can do is to consider some of the things the Bible tells us about the flood. Let's go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 17, it says, And the flood was forty days upon the earth, 
and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. So, so finally the ark is lifted up above the earth, and it's sitting, in a sense, upon the flood, isn't it? The ark is the, the only, um, thing that, that, um, is in existence really, except for the waters and the sea creatures, but it's the only thing that has come up from the earth and risen to the point where it's upon the flood. And, and the ark is a type and figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the Bible tells us Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the ark in a figure is a picture of eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King. And Christ is also Jehovah. Remember in Isaiah 43:11, I, Jehovah, I, Jehovah, am Savior, and beside me there is no other. And the New Testament tells us that unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jehovah is Savior, Christ is Savior, and Jehovah, Savior, as the name Jehovah points to his saving work, Jehovah sitteth upon the flood, the ark, a picture of the Savior, Jesus Christ, sits upon the flood. But also, even more than that, goes on to say in Genesis 7, verse 18, And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. Verse 19, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. Verse 20, Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. And then verse 24, And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. And we might think that uh, God would would uh, say these things about the ark, that the ark prevailed, because the word prevailed means victorious, triumphant. It, it It's a word that relates to winning, to victory. And yet God is speaking of the waters as triumphant, the waters as being victorious, the waters prevailed, the waters covered the earth, the waters slew the wicked of the world and and everything that had the breath of life. The waters identify with the word of God, the Bible. Uh, we made mention of this verse in our last study in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5, says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. By the word of God, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. You see why God is emphasizing the waters prevailed. Because the waters identify with his word. And it is his word that was victorious. His word that warned the world. That uh, that commanded Noah to build the ark. 
and and his word that finally fulfilled his promise and brought everything to pass that he declared would come to pass and so his word gets the glory the the word is triumphant when finally the judgment that god had decreed would happen did happen so the word also identifies with christ just as the ark did and the word rested upon the earth jehovah sitteth upon the flood and the flood was the waters the waters which relate to god's holy word the bible jehovah god sitteth upon his word ruling reigning as king a triumphant victorious king i think that's um one of the reasons or both both the ark and the waters point to the lord jesus christ and christ winning the war winning the battle against all enemies of god and his kingdom well okay let's go back here to our verse in genesis and we'll move on to verse 18 of genesis chapter 6 and it says but with thee will i establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons wives with thee just as the word flood first appeared in the previous verse here in verse 18 is the first time in the bible that we find the word covenant the hebrew word covenant berith and god says to noah but with thee will i establish my covenant and you know there's um a great many things said about covenants in the bible if you read some theologians and their commentaries and especially modern theologians who really have lost sight of all truth as god has brought delusion upon the corporate churches and and that would include the theologians of the churches they they talk about all kinds of covenants the abrahamic covenant and here they would they would refer to the noahian or 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 noahian covenant and and they make reference to pauline covenants in the new testament and it's it's almost endless wherever we find god making reference to a covenant in the bible as he does from time to time he speaks to a particular man and he he says i have made a covenant with you well then they get all carried away and and trying to find the particulars concerning that covenant with that man and it's really a similar mistake that they make uh, concerning um god speaking to the people of that particular time period and and they make a big deal out of that how would they have understood it and received the things that god was saying in in that particular century or era and they just lack basic understanding this is nothing too deep it's nothing um that any child of god doesn't comprehend and understand but of course the problem with many theologians and this has been the problem throughout history 
is that they were never saved themselves. They, they are men with natural minds that approach the Bible, and therefore they look at it in a natural way, in a, in a literal way, in a physical way, a historical way, a grammatical way. Things that, that can be measured and understood like other sciences, and they, they comprehend those types of things. But the hidden things of the Bible, they, they go right past them. They, they cannot understand because there's no ability within them to understand these things. It hasn't been given to them to understand. And really, when we come to the covenant, the word covenant, this Hebrew word berith, it's not that complicated. And to simplify it, we just follow the same methodology as we follow with other words. We, we don't get caught up with, well, this is the Noachian covenant. And, and then a few chapters from now, if we go to Genesis 17, in verse 7, where God is speaking to Abram, and, and he has just changed his name to Abraham, um, in verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So here, again, we have God speaking to Abraham, and there are certain key elements that are involved with this, and really, um, you know, I, I struggled in time past in my life through reading some of the theological writings concerning covenants, and they are almost uh, boundless in their ability to confuse the reader. And by God's grace... All we have to do to understand the covenant God made with Noah and the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant God made with anyone else in the Bible is to search out the word covenant. Just search it out and see how else it's used, um, where else it's found, and, and the manner in which God um, gives us that particular word. For instance, if we go to Exodus 34, Exodus 34, beginning in verse 27, it says, And Jehovah said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with Jehovah forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Here God calls the Ten Commandments the covenant. And it, well, not only here, you can, you can also read it, uh, in other places, including Deuteronomy 9, in verse 15, so I turned and came down from the mount, and the mount burned with fire, 
and the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. Two tables of the berith. It's the same word. The Ten Commandments written on two tables of stone are called the covenant. It's why later when the Ten Commandments, the two tables, are placed in the ark, that the ark became known as the ark of the covenant because it contained the Ten Commandments, which God identified as the covenant. And so, all right, now... um I'm sure some theologians get carried away with that. And very specifically, they would call the Ten Commandments, and only the Ten Commandments, the covenant of God. This is the covenant he made with his people Israel. And and again, they would uh, go off uh, in a wrong way and, and off course. Because the Ten Commandments, the number ten in the Bible, points to completeness. And the Ten Commandments point to the completeness of God's commandments. And the completeness of God's commandments can be found where? They can be found in the Word of God, the Bible. The Ten Commandments represent the entire Scripture. All the words that God has spoken are typified by the Ten Commandments. They're really a representation of the entire Bible, all 66 books from Genesis through Revelation. And the two tables of stone that are called the covenant, the Ten Commandments called the covenant, is telling us that the Bible itself is the covenant that God has made with his people. And we have this confirmed in Second Kings... Chapter 22, and in this chapter, they find the book of the law during the reign of uh, the last good king of Judah, King Josiah. It says in Second Kings 22, verse 8, And Hilkiah, the high priest, said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Jehovah. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Then they give it to the king in verse 10. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. They found more than the Ten Commandments. They found the book of the law. And and the book of the law can refer to the first five books of the Bible. The first five books that God moved Moses to write. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch. But it can even refer to more than that. To uh, to much more of the Old Testament scriptures. But anyway, even if it's five books, it serves the purpose to illustrate what the covenant is. Because it says in Second Kings 23... In verse 2, And the king went up into the house of Jehovah, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found 
in the house of Jehovah, and the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before Jehovah to walk after Jehovah and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart, with all their soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people stood to the covenant. The covenant is the word of God, the Bible. And when God comes to Noah, or when God comes to Abraham, or when God comes to Jacob, or Joseph, or David, or whoever, God comes to, and he makes a reference to his covenant, and he speaks certain things to these men. Well, yes, what he's saying is part of the whole covenant, which is the scripture, the word of God, the Bible. And and in the Bible, God said certain things to Noah and certain things to Abraham. He made certain promises and so forth. And they're all a part of his league, which is another English word. The word covenant is translated as part of his league with his people. And, and with those that keep the covenant, of course, that means they keep the word of God. They keep the commandments of God because the covenant is the Bible and they keep it in their newborn again soul existence because inwardly, once God saves a person and once he has saved his people, they Obey him from the heart. There's perfection in the heart. There is a keeping of the law of God or the commandments of God. There is a a maintaining of his covenant in that sense. And also through, of course, the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience, the people of God are counted as covenant keepers rather than covenant breakers, which the rest of mankind is regarded as. Remember what God said in Isaiah 24, in a chapter where he's going into detail concerning the judgment, the final judgment of this world, of all the inhabitants of the earth. He says in Isaiah 24, verse 5, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Where did the people of the world break the covenant? When did God make a covenant with them? Well, in the Garden of Eden, when he said to Adam and Eve, In the day you eat thereof, ye will surely die. And mankind broke the everlasting covenant because the covenant is simply the commandment of God. And and so, in our verse in Genesis, it says again in verse 18, But with thee will I establish my covenant. And, and God delivered his word to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. He he was a recipient of the word of God, the commandments of God concerning the many things we've been looking at in this chapter, 
and, and so forth. God has established his covenant with him, and including in that covenant is a covenant of grace and a covenant of predestination. We don't have time uh, to get into it right now, but the next part of the verse, 120 years in advance, God says, Thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. 120 years in advance of the flood. This is the year 5110 B.C. The flood will take place in 4990 B.C. 120 years later, God at this point is still giving instruction concerning the building of the ark. And included in the instruction, God tells and declares the total number of people that will eventually enter into the ark 120 years later. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship's Evening Bible Studies. You can hear these studies Monday through Friday over PalTalk, Skype, eBible Fellowship's webcast audio, or over your phone. For more information or to hear other studies, visit www.ebiblefellowship.com. Until our next study, may the Lord's perfect will be done.